the monopoly that universities may have had in the past as gatekeepers to higher learning and continuing education, that has changed. You do it through incremental innovations. You're constantly improving the current products and services you're offering your customers so it gets better for them all the time. But you're also thinking about more radical innovations, things that will be breakthroughs. Innovation involves these two things, really understanding technology and having a grasp of that and the opportunities of technology, but equally really having a grasp of what matters to the consumer. In emerging markets, this faster, better, cheaper, using resources that are already there to come up with new systems, sometimes leapfrogging things that you might have in the West. You have to start with the citizen and then work outside in, not inside out, just like companies have learned to do with customers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of Recast. I'm here today with another guest and a guest that I am very excited to talk about for the next 40-45 minutes. I have with me Professor Jaydeep Prabhu. He's the Professor of Marketing at Judge Business School, University of Cambridge. Welcome to Recast, Professor Prabhu. Thank you so much, Saurabh. It's uh, really a great pleasure to be with you. I think that's what actually pandemic has done. It has sort of made world even smaller. Right now, you are in London and, you know, we are sort of, you know, recording this live for our audience. So thank you so much for being on the show. So I think the way I would want to structure this discussion is I have some questions and I have immense respect for academics because I think that they are always the first ones to catch on a trend. They are very good at trend spotting. And, you know, once you catch on a trend, you would research that thoroughly. And then, you know, in about five to 10 years time, the mainstream or the commercial side of the world, you know, picks those concepts and, you know, then they become mainstream for like many businesses. I think your background is of particular interest to me. So before I get into my question, why don't you just talk actually a little bit about your profile so that, you know, the audience can learn more about you, your background, and, you know, how did you end up being at University of Cambridge? Yeah, absolutely, Saurabh. So I grew up in India. I lived in many parts of the country. I did my undergraduate studies in engineering at IIT Delhi. I then went to the States and switched to business. I got a PhD in marketing from the University of Southern California in LA. I taught at UCLA and then Tilburg University in the Netherlands before moving to the UK. I was in Cambridge for a few years. I then went to Imperial College in London and then returned to Cambridge to my current position. And I'm a professor of marketing, so I've taught different aspects of marketing to students all the way from undergraduates to very senior executives in the private sector, but also in the public sector. And my research interests have been mainly about innovation. I've always been interested in the links between marketing and innovation. In the first part of my career, I studied innovation in large Western companies because the understanding was that's where innovation happens. And then about maybe 10 years or so ago, I became interested in innovation in emerging economies like India, where I'd grown up, and related economies in Asia, like China, Southeast Asia, some of the African economies, Latin America. And that's when I became interested in this idea of jugad, as we call it in India, or frugal innovation, as it's called in the West. And I wrote a couple of books about it. From that has come another book now, just come out on uh, such innovation in government. 
That's very exciting, Professor Prabhu. I think we are going to talk about all of those books and especially your latest one, How Government Should Be, because I think, you know, the title is very catchy. And I think it's, it's again, something that's more futuristic because I think probably you're advising governments in terms of how they should now remodel themselves, especially, you know, during post-pandemic. But let me just begin by asking you a question. I think I, I sort of started the show by saying that, you know, immense respect for academics because they are good trend spotters. We know that because of pandemic, the different industries have been disrupted. But I think one industry in particular, and that is uh, the education business. Because of pandemic, people couldn't come to classrooms. I think, you know, those had to be shifted more virtually. If you ask a student, especially, you know, the ones who are doing their bachelor's or their master's, I think they would come to a university to soak in and, you know, sort of gain some more experience to network in person. But now I think because of the model, I think people are not allowed to travel. They have to be connected virtually. Now, I don't know where that really leaves us. And I'm not sure, you know, what future of education and especially higher education would entail. So what's your take? How do you see, you know, next five to 10 years evolving with respect to the future of education? Yeah, well, again, Sarah, great question. And I think it's going to be a very exciting period for education over the next five to 10 years because of some of these changes that have been accelerated by the pandemic. These changes were already happening. Going back at least 10 years, we saw the seeds of what has accelerated during the pandemic happening in particularly, as you said, higher education. And I would say, I would call it continuing education because really now we're in a world of lifelong learning. It's not like in the past, just go to the university for your degree. Maybe you got a bachelor's, maybe tops, you'd get a master's degree. You might go back after two or three years to get a master's. And that was it. Now you have to constantly learn, but you don't have to go to university to learn. That's what has changed. So I would say the monopoly that universities may have had in the past as gatekeepers to higher learning and continuing education, that has changed. But the pandemic, as I said, only accelerated it. These trends were already happening. I remember maybe about 10 years or so ago, we, my colleagues and I in the business school, we have an annual away day where we go and brainstorm about issues that we should be thinking about, thinking about the future. And I brought up this issue. At that time, they were called MOOCs. That was all the rage. I was saying, you know, there are these platforms, digital platforms coming up, and you can teach hundreds, thousands of students who will never be able to come to university, and you can do it so cheaply and flexibly. What are we doing about it? And then my director, our dean, said to me, okay, if you're so interested in it, you become the faculty lead. I said, okay, what will it involve? He said, do whatever you want, but I can't give you any budget. Okay. And he said, you're an expert <laughs> in frugal innovation. So why don't you apply <laughs> principles of frugal innovation to this? And we bootstrapped, we created a, a department, we created a unit, small unit, a small team within the school to look at digital learning. We started to look at all the kinds of things we could do, not only with our degree programs, but also uh, starting new sort of certificate type programs through executive education. And we would have to talk to the main university to get permission, but they were a bit skeptical about these new approaches, you know, because it's an old university. They have done a certain model of students coming to the university, living there. And so this was a little new for them and a little strange and a bit risky. And they were generally, I would say, reluctant to support us to do all these new things until the pandemic happened. And in one week, we had to switch immediately from face-to-face, in-person teaching to online. And then luckily, we in the business school had already developed quite a lot of expertise. We had a team, we had developed programs that had significant online components. 
And we were able to do that without any problems. And we were able to help other parts of the university to make the transition. So that's a little bit about how the changes happened. Now, all our classes are online, including our executive education programs, which typically like to come to Cambridge for a few days to be here. Now all that is online. And I think this is going to continue. Of course, there is often no substitute for in-person. So post-pandemic, we will probably have continue to have many programs where people come to the university, stay here, either for short periods of time or for a year or more. But I think we'll be doing far more purely online programs, flexible programs, but also blended programs where some component will be in person with visits to the university and some components will be online with remote learning. So I think it's an exciting time. I think this is going to benefit everyone. Universities have lost their monopoly. Lots of other players are entering. And I think the beneficiary is going to be ordinary people who wish to learn throughout their lives. So just for my understanding, I just could be completely wrong in this. But as I understand that, you know, when those classes were happening in person, like a typical university would run a six-month course or a 12-month course or even a two-year course. And hence, I think you would have limited number of batches coming in. And I think actually what I feel, because, you know, when I was in university, I spoke to, you know, some of the alumni and they said the course content that was being taught was exactly the same, right? I think it sort of didn't go under a lot of change because I think year on year, that was sort of, you know, actually really carried forward with a little bit of changes here or there, you know, to make it more contextual to that particular batch by using some more recent case studies or recent examples. But now the moment you get into the whole digital space, you have a wider audience to appeal to. Would you think that this is also one area where I think universities will get challenged, where the education curriculum now will be have to treat it, it'll have to be treated like content, which will have to undergo a lot of change, you know, at a much faster pace? Absolutely. So I think there's no doubt Again, I would say these trends were already happening, accelerated by the pandemic and shaken, I would say, the traditional players, universities, shaken them out of a kind of inertia and complacence. And they have created, shall we say, greater awareness for the need not only to change the content and create new courses or new types of courses, but also the format and the mode of delivery. And I can again tell you from my own experience in a business school, how we've had these pressures uh, building up over time. So even many years prior to the pandemic, I'd say going back easily 10, 20 years, in a business school, we are training people to be managers and to be employed by companies. The companies would come to us and say, look, we're happy to take your students because after all, they're from Cambridge. But we're not just looking for people who can repeat things that are in textbooks. That is becoming a commodity now. Of course, they have to know that. That's a hygiene factor. But more than that, we are looking for people who have certain kinds of skills that can only be learned by doing. You know, they're practical skills. These are skills uh, which you could call entrepreneurial skills or 21st century skills. These are to do with communication, leadership, working in teams, dealing with diversity, dealing with uncertainty, being proactive, being able to solve problems, being self-led, and so on. And so, you know, for a while now in our MBA curriculum, of course, we have the standard courses which and stuff that's in the textbooks about finance and marketing and all that kind of stuff. But increasingly, 
we've been injecting into different parts of the program right from beginning to end many practical real world group based activities where our students which are already very diverse we very deliberately choose people from all around the world with very diverse backgrounds in terms of their work experience and their life experiences then we put them in small teams so usually of about 5 or so and then they work on real life problems for real clients initially in the first term they work for local startups in cambridge then they work for in their second term for a global company on a global problem and they actually travel to those places pre pandemic that is and then they uh, go into concentrations they go into a focus area in their last term and then in the summer they again do projects so throughout they have this this emphasis on learning by doing by actually working in small diverse teams to solve problems real time with of course faculty supervision so that's just an example of how the content in a sense is changing but so too is the format so of course we still have programs which are residential programs like the full time mba where they come and live here but as i said even during that year there's a lot of travel there's a lot of practical experience but we have increasingly introduced programs which are far more flexible than that we have master of studies uh, degree that was introduced by the university for people who are working in jobs around the world and they cannot take one year off to come and you know it's too much of a luxury there's too much opportunity cost there they can maybe afford to come to cambridge for maybe two weeks every six months or so so this is a very flexible program you could call it a blended program where uh, students can come to the university for a couple of weeks they'll have in person teaching they get to meet the faculty and their other colleagues classmates then they go back to their jobs wherever they are and for the next 6 months they are working online in groups mentored supervised but a distance and a lot of the learning happens on a platform on a digital platform so i would completely agree with you there's going to be a lot of churn the universities these traditional players have been shaken up by this there are lots of opportunities they're discovering not only changing the content but also the format of education so which means the whole business model of education now would go under change you know the economics would change because i think this business now will uh, scale further and i think there will be no physical boundaries you would be able to connect with people around the world at scale and hence i think the whole economics and you know how universities used to run i think would sort of go through a fundamental change absolutely there's no doubt about that and there are many different reasons why there are these changes happening one is as we were discussing the changing nature of work which and and the fast fast pace of change means that people have to learn continuously there's continuous learning um, they can't just have one degree or two degrees and that serves them for the rest of their lives they may have done an mba today but in two years time they'll have to learn about some new technology like fintech or blockchain and they can't come back to university to get another degree so they would want a short program maybe on a digital platform which they could do while they're working so there are these changing nature of work changing nature of education so you need lifelong learning but changing nature of technology which means this is possible now but there's also changing nature of competition because as i said the universities are losing their monopoly we increasingly have private players startups uh, from places you might not think you know like south africa or india uh, that are 
developing very creative approaches and very high quality, I would say, as well, uh, solutions at very affordable prices, which they can market retail directly to customers on digital platforms. So this whole space is, I think, really shaping up to be very interesting uh, and very vibrant over the next uh, few years. Yeah, I mean, I was reading a LinkedIn article. I don't know how true it is, but I think probably Adidas is also committed to now becoming D2C and, you know, contributing almost 50% of their revenue through that uh, channel by 2025, which was very exciting to read that, you know, how these businesses are also sort of, you know, evolving and sort of trying to reach their customers in a more direct way. And I think this beautifully, you know, sets us up for the next discussion that we are going to have. So we've discussed about future of education. We know that disruption happened. And because of disruption, people were forced to think of newer ways for doing things. Now, it could be future of education, it could be future of work, it could be future of health. You've been, you know, like a lifelong student around innovation. I think that's been your research interest. What have you learned about innovation in last 15 years? And how that knowledge is now coming in handy, especially, you know, when when you see so much of change around you and, you know, so many businesses, you know, sort of trying to do things differently. Oh, yeah. Wonderful question. So let's start with the role of innovation in business. My sort of uh, main focus, that's been my main focus as a business school professor and particularly as a professor of marketing, you know, so for me, marketing is all about the relationship that the company, the organization has with its customers. It's about identifying your customers, starting the relationship, and then maintaining that relationship in the face of change and competition. So how do you maintain that thriving relationship? How do you delight your customers? How do you excite them? How do you keep them coming back to you? For me, innovation is the way you do it. You do it through incremental innovations. You're constantly improving the current products and services you're offering your customers so it gets better for them all the time. But you're also thinking about more radical innovations, things that will be breakthroughs, you know, that even the customers will be absolutely amazed by, delighted by. Help us with an example on that. You know, when you say breakthrough innovation, I think that's a nice business jargon, but from your research, from your case stories, do you know any any organization that has done that successfully? Yes, yes. So usually these uh, organizations come at a crucial time in changes in society and technology. When breakthrough technologies come about, so if you, you know, you can go back to the dawn of the Industrial Revolution when the steam engine comes out, then there's an opportunity for a lot of entrepreneurs to enter. Then when railways come along. There are opportunities for new players and entrepreneurs to enter. When the telephone comes along, you get huge opportunities. So the car, when the automobile came along. So that's really when we start having these, uh, shall we say, larger than life characters. You know, we have people like Edison who starts his company around electricity and light. We have people like Henry Ford who starts his company around cars and so on. And they are transformative, right? And, you know, in many cases, they came up with something that even the most savvy consumers could not possibly have imagined, right? Henry Ford said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? That's how they would have imagined. And in fact, the first cars looked like the old horse-drawn carriages without the horse. So it's when these technological transformations start to happen that you start to see these really breakthrough ideas where some very creative entrepreneur has shaped the technology in a way that's valuable to consumers, where consumers, when they see it, they know they want it, but they could not have come up with it themselves. 
And more recently, we can think of people like Steve Jobs is the obvious example, giving someone a phone which doesn't have any buttons on it. I mean, people like when they saw that, they were just like, wow, what is this? How is it possible? Is this magic? And then when they start using it, it's so intuitive, right? Or should we say that Steve Jobs is already a history? We are already talking about Elon Musk. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say. So they become, they go into history in the past in 50 years, now in 50 minutes. Right? In 50 minutes. So, so now you have an Elon Musk who's doing amazing things, taking people to Mars and, you know. So you can have those kinds of breakthrough innovations which are using new technologies. But really, they are grounded in some deep understanding of what delights human beings. And that is very important. What is it that human beings really want? What is it that really surprises and delights them? So it's that combination of that insight and technology. That's a very interesting thought. What consumers want, what delights them. And I think you started by giving a definition around marketing that it's all about relationship. So I think what we are seeing, at least in this part of the world in Southeast Asia, that increasingly uh, CTOs and CXOs, as they call it, are being favored more over CMOs. I think the role of a chief marketing officer is slowly, gradually becoming redundant because I think you know the need is that a CMO should be multifaceted. He or she should have some of the other skills that sort of traditional marketeers don't have, especially I think for you know the digital side of the world, but also for the experience and you know the value and you know the relationship building aspects of it. Do you think that it's still just a jargon shift? The roles would primarily remain the same or you think that the role of a CMO is fundamentally shifting within the corporate circle? I think there's no doubt that there's a fundamental shift towards technology, as you put it, towards data, towards digital, towards analytics. There was a time when you could just be creative in marketing, right? You just needed to understand your customers, have that insight, do a nice ad campaign, all that kind of stuff. That still remains important, but far more important now is having a really good source of data on your customers, usually through a digital platform where you get the data as part of your business cycle. Every time a consumer comes to you, you collect that data. Every time they do a transaction, you have that data. All of it is recorded automatically. Then you have some kind of algorithm and AI that processes it, gets the insight from it, and then you have some automated way of responding to it. So that whole cycle now has is using technology sure. and it's using both hardware and software. It's using things like AI and so on. And so it's very important for the marketing people, whatever they're called, to really understand that component and have that training. And I think these are artificial silos in a way, given by the terms that we create and all this kind of stuff. Really, as I said, innovation involves these two things, really understanding technology and having a grasp of that and the opportunities of technology, but equally really having a grasp of what matters to the consumer, what matters to the humans involved in the system. And I think really good marketing people or really good business people or good entrepreneurs combine both those skills. So how you combine that, how you're constantly trying to train and improve your understanding of those things is at the root of success. When you were explaining the case stories, I think you, you sort of brought out Henry Ford as an example. Then we spoke about Steve Jobs and we spoke about Elon Musk. There is a popular discussion, you know, happening within corporate circles. And I think that's how practitioners would sort of look at it, that all the innovation happens in private sector. 
and then government catches on right now i think one can say that you know gps was an invention of us military and that's how google maps or google sort of you know adopted that technology so i think it's very hard to now say that you know what was the starting point and you know how who was behind scaling that technology and making it available to the world what's your thought on that and when you answer that just in terms of who's the catalyst for innovation is it the private sector or public sector just help us segue into the book that you have written how government should be help our audience to get a gist of it and you know why they should pick that book and you know what will they get out of it if they read all the pages okay great so let's start with the first part what's the role of the government versus the private sector in innovation so innovation is a pretty complex thing there are many stages and many aspects of innovation we all we kind of discussed this just now you have to have somewhere in the mix probably very early on some groundbreaking technology right so we talked about the steam engine railways the automobile telephone the internet so if that's almost like infrastructure you could say it's technological infrastructure and some of that is very expensive to do and very complex to do it takes many years to come up with the, all the know-how needed for that a lot of that will happen in labs which are typically in two places looking at blue sky thinking either these are government labs sponsored by the government to do these really big things like defense or space or they are university labs where the universities and academics by their nature are trying to look at really breakthrough technologies whether it's the internet or it's biogenetics or ai or autonomous vehicles things like that so some of that shall we say foundational infrastructure needed for innovation because it's so expensive to do and it's so long term needs to be underwritten by the public sector by the state but then you need the sector to come in you need people to come in to shape those technologies into products and services that meet the needs of customers and that are affordable and attractive and usable that actually solve human problems the technologies per se on their own may not do that you gave gps and so on or the infrastructure the internet would not do that unless you have websites and all this kind of stuff and you have apps that you can download and you need people like uh, the steve jobs and the elon musks and the bill gates all these kinds of people to come along to do that so you need both and that to me has been the real understanding that has gone into writing my book so how did i come to write the book I as I said I'm a business school professor I've studied innovation in the private sector that's been my main sort of interest and as I said the first part of my career I studied innovation in large western companies and in the west in business schools at least we don't really think much about the role of the government we take it for granted then I started to get interested in innovation in emerging economies and in emerging economies the state is still a very important player for various reasons good and bad reasons you have to think about the state if you're doing business and so i became very interested in the role of the state in nurturing the private sector and innovation in the private sector so when you say role of state just for my audience it means the role of government at a the local level or at a national level depending upon what's the administrative setup in that particular country okay yes and of course the government also it's a big beast right there's the executive legislature making the laws there's the judiciary then as you said the central government state government local government mayors so 
I'm using the term very broadly, the state, the public sector. And in some cases, the state is also involved in state-owned enterprises and public services. So they're like companies, but state-owned and run. So I'm talking about that big beast of the state, right? That state has a very important role. And not just in emerging economies, we're recognizing even in the West, particularly in times of crisis, right? Like the pandemic. Now, the question is, how should that state be? in terms of managing its own operations, and also in terms of running the economy. So that is a question that I've always sort of thought about, but not like front and center. I always thought about the companies and how companies should innovate. And in the West, the corporates would innovate in a particular 20th century model, which was very structured, a lot of process, quite expensive, often technology for the sake of technology. But when I studied innovation in emerging markets like India, I saw the approach was very different. It was not expensive. It was very frugal because they had to make products affordably. It was not very structured. It was quite flexible and dynamic. And it wasn't a kind of elitist thing. It wasn't just for the rich. The actual, a lot of the innovation was about making things accessible to people who are outside the formal economy trying to get in. So I started to look at that and I was fascinated particularly in India, but also in China, related economies, how over the last 10, 20 years, we've seen lots of these kinds of highly affordable solutions coming in healthcare, in telecoms, in energy, education, agri-tech, all these kinds. Help us with an example, say in China or in Southeast Asia, you know, like one innovation that has caught your attention. So maybe I could, I mean, tell you about Africa, right? So for me, one that I was just blown away from the moment I heard about it, and I've written now extensively about it, both from the private sector perspective as well as the government perspective, is a service that was developed by Vodafone in Kenya in 2007 called M-Pesa. It's now spread to many countries. And the idea was to enable people, usually who are outside the formal economy and don't have access to the banking system, to basically transfer small amounts of money to each other directly using that basic Nokia-enabled, text-enabled phone, not even smartphones, because this is 2007, right? So a lot of people would migrate from the villages to the city in Kenya, and then they would want to send money home to their families. This is, of course, in many countries. And at that time, they would either have to send it through Western Union, which was expensive and time-consuming, or they would have to take it themselves or send it with a friend, and that was dangerous. So what M-Pesa did was it enabled people to text, to use a text message facility, money as e-float to their family member in the village. The family member could receive that message onto their phone and then go to the local corner shop in the village, which was the M-Pesa agent, and cash it. They would text it and get cash. And it's a very simple idea, but uses things that were already there. People already had mobile phones, already texting each other, and they had corner shops, they joined the dots there and created this system. So that was the private sector, but the state played a very important role as well. The central bank was the key regulator, and Vodafone had to get their permission. They went to the central bank saying, look, you guys are trying to reach all these people who are outside the banking system. The banks have failed to do it, but here's a mobile-based approach, and mobile telephony is just taking off. See how simple it would be. And of course, the central bank could have said, you guys uh, go and get a banking license and then come back. That would have killed it. Or you're a telecoms company, go to the telecoms regulator. That would have killed it. No, they instead they engaged, but they also wanted, of course, to do the due diligence. They got independent consultants. They got their own legal team. 
They checked, is this system robust? Is the software going to work or is it going to fail? Is it, does it comply with international money laundering? Also, is it legally allowed for them to do this? Is it banking or is it just payments? And very quickly, they got an answer to all these things. And then they gave them a letter of no objection. They said, you can proceed, but you have to report data. So what we talked about before, we want to see on a daily basis how many people are coming on the platform. What is the functioning of the platform? Are there instances of failure or fraud? How are you correcting this? And then then took off. So that's just an example of the kind of thing I'm, I'm talking about. It's very frugal. It's very affordable. You don't have to set up new bank branches in villages that you will not be able to maintain because you don't get enough revenue and demand. And so that's the kind of thing I became aware of in emerging markets, this faster, better, cheaper, using resources that are already there to come up with new systems, sometimes leapfrogging things that you might have in the West, systems that you might have in the West. And of course, in India, we call this Jugaad, but other parts of the world, you call it frugal innovation. So I became aware that this, there was a worldwide kind of movement towards frugal innovation. Small teams, sometimes of our students, are now able to do things that only large companies or the government, big labs could have done 10 or 20 years ago. And not only in software, if you take WhatsApp, for instance, four guys developed WhatsApp in less than a year with a small amount of seed capital, and then they generated huge value. But also in hardware. We have a former student, mature student uh, of ours here in Cambridge, who was in the computer science department in Cambridge. He was responsible for student admissions. And they realized that young people in the UK were not applying to study computer science. And even when they applied, they had never tinkered with the computer or done any coding. So they came up with a very basic computer microprocessor, which you could hold in a hand, that the students would have to play with, have to code with. And if it was so cheap that if they broke it, it wouldn't be a big deal. The first one was $30, and now they have a $5 version. They sold millions of this. Just a small team of people came up with the idea and this company. So I wrote two books about this phenomenon in the private sector, how these small teams were able to do more and better with less in all these sectors around the world. And when I talked about these books in public talks and events, somebody would always ask me, so what does this mean for governments? If the private sector is doing it, surely the government should also get better at doing things faster, better, cheaper, delivering services to its citizens that quality and involve less hassle and less cost to the citizen. And also, of course, it also has implications for what the government should do vis-a-vis nurturing this kind of uh, system, a frugal economy encouraging companies to do more of that and supporting them and regulating them, of course, when they do bad things. So in your research, which government you think is ahead of the curve when it comes to innovation, when it comes to digitalization? I mean, we know that probably China is sort of on that path. US has always historically been the innovation bed. So just in terms of public sector, who would you place your bets on? Okay. So again, a great question. And I was very keen when I wrote a book, and here's a copy of the book. I always have it next to me. You should hold it for longer so that, you know, people can see the cover and, you know, they can remember. (laughs) Oh, that's a beautiful design. Yes, yes. So how should a government be the new levers of state power? And you can see these are so the pillars of government. I especially like that design where, you know, you know, the walls are now uh, falling and I think it's, it's becoming more fluid. It's becoming more fluid and change is happening, right? Uh, these old 
like we talked about universities, same thing could hold. These things that were complacent and there was inertia, those are being shaken up. And I think the same thing is happening in government. So I was very keen that two things. I wanted the book to be very much based on actual case study that had achieved something of significance, not just a little pilot or something, something transformational and something uh, that was pretty universal. I didn't want only to look at, let's say, what uh, the U.S. is doing and then say, OK, you know, India, you got to be like that. Equally, I wasn't just going to look at China and say, oh, you know, everybody, you got to be like that. I wanted to be able to see, can we find examples from anywhere in the world, whether it's, I gave the example of Kenya or India or Bangladesh or China or U.S., Canada, U.K., Netherlands, Denmark, Brazil. And actually, for me, what was most exciting was to find great examples from governments, large and small, developed and developing. So, of course, in digitalization, everybody talks of Estonia. Estonia is the shining example, actually a very interesting example, because you would not have expected a small country that was part of the Soviet bloc to just burst out of the blocks, literally, when it came to digitalization. And they have been stupendously successful, right? But then you might say, okay, it's a small country, it's in Europe, it's part of the European Union. So what's surprising about that? What's surprising is that you will see transformative programs in, say, a country like India. Massive country, so complex, with all these different layers of government, federal government known to be slow and bureaucratic and very process driven and very cautious. What is astonishing is, say, a project like the Aadhaar project, UID, right? Which in about five years was able to give almost every Indian, more than a billion Indians, a unique ID linked to biometrics and to do it at less than a dollar per citizen. Right. So it shows that even a large, complex country, which is not particularly known to be efficient, can do things like this if they set their minds to it, if there's a good organization, if there's good leadership and there's a kind of a good momentum. And then you build on it. So you can build on the Aadhaar to create kinds of other systems, so-called India Stack, which has enabled whole payments ecosystem and a digital banking ecosystem, which has included hundreds of thousands, millions of Indians who are otherwise left out of the banking system. So you can leapfrog. Now, you mentioned China. So obviously, you know, we have to talk about China. In China, you see something very similar in the kind of public sector. You see a lot of private sector innovation. But public sector, one of the most interesting things to me is something called the social credit system that has been introduced to give every Chinese individual, but also business, a score, a credit score based on their behavior, their financial behavior, which is like credit scores we have in the West in any other country, but also their social behavior. This is where it gets a bit tricky. So you can be rated based on not only your private behavior at home, like your online behavior and so on, but also your public behavior, like are you eating in the public transport? Have you crossed the traffic lights when the lights were green, red or whatever? And then based on that, there are real consequences. If you get a bad rating, you can be denied access to certain services. So it could be very draconian. And then, of course, it can be linked to, you know, facial recognition and can be used for surveillance. And then you can imagine in an authoritarian state, this can get very tricky. But the fact is that many Chinese uh, think that this is a great system because it polices bad behavior uh, of people. So anyway, you can see these examples. I've given examples from India, China, Kenya. 
Now, of course, I can talk about Estonia, lots of things that, you know, you can, you and I can become citizens of Estonia online, right? We can pay taxes in Estonia in a minute. You can do your taxes. Imagine that. Right? Talk about Citizens delighting the customer. In which <laughs> country can you do your taxes in a minute online? No, no country, right? In Estonia, they're trying to bring it down to less than a minute to do your taxes. I mean, many professionals in Singapore can do it in zero minutes because we are part of a no-filing scheme. <laughs> we actually don't even have to open <laughs> the tax portal. It just gets done, yeah. So Singapore is another, it's a star country when it comes to this. UAE is very interesting. UAE is trying to copy Singapore in many ways, including having a very professional, competent government and constantly innovating. I've been very impressed with people in the UAE. So, you know, there are countries from around the world doing amazing things. And usually we only hear about the bad things that when the government fails and it's it's incompetent, which is, of course, that continues. Even in countries which have astonishing things that they have done, there are lots of cases of incompetence. I can talk about the UK where I live. Of course, we did very badly on some metrics in the pandemic, but then we are also doing quite well in some other things like the vaccine program. So you can have governments that in some parts are really competent and efficient and in some areas are, are not so. So I think this is an exciting discussion. I wish I can just go on and on with this because I think you have so many such stories that, that we can learn from. But I think I, I started with future of education. Let me end this discussion by asking an expert like you, what's the future of marketing or innovation? If I use those two terms more interchangeably now, given the context we are in, and what will be your advice to a marketeer versus a very senior bureaucrat in the government? Because I think we all have read and we all know innovation is nothing but it's a mindset. Once you set your eye, you know, if you have the eye to look for opportunities and possibilities, I think innovation comes to you more naturally. So apart from that whole mindset game, what's your advice to private sector marketeers and public sector or like, you know, actually civil servants who work for the state? Yeah, what a great question. A really great question. Cuts to the heart of, I guess, my own career and what I've thought about throughout my career. And I'll go back to what I said before. So yes, you asked what's the future, what should a future marketer be? But really, it's going back to the future. We have been there before. What really matters and will continue to matter is your ability to do two things. Understand technology and how it's changing and understand the customer and how the customer is changing. There's no substitute for that. And actually, I said it in the wrong order. It should start with the customer. Understand the customer and get customer insight and use technology to get that customer insight and then to deliver on that insight. So that to me is the essence of marketing and innovation and indeed success in business. And that's my advice to anybody in business, not just a marketer. Really understand your customer. And, you know, by the way, the customer is many different people, right? It's not just the person who you're selling your thing to. It could be the person who's using it. It could be the intermediary. It could be a government. Later, it could be an employee you're trying to hire, right? It could be a supplier. These are all customers in the broadest sense of the term. So really understanding all these stakeholders, getting the insight, and then responding to them in the best possible way using the latest, the best technology. Not necessarily the latest, the best technology. Now, what would I advise to a government servant? My advice would be very similar. I would just change some of the words. So I wouldn't say customer. I would say citizen. Think about your citizen right? Place the citizen at the front and center. And 
that's easier said than done. And often nobody even says it. It's all about the bureaucracy. It's all about the government. It's all about telling people what to do. No, you have to start with the citizen and then work outside in, not inside out, just like companies have learned to do with customers. So I would say do that. Really understand your citizen. You may think you understand your citizen, but you may not. And, you know, in Bangladesh, it's very interesting. They have training for bureaucrats, empathy training, which is like the secret shopper. You know, in companies, people will be secret shoppers to go and see how customers are interacting with their brands in the store. They did this with the bureaucrats. They sent them to stand in line to get a government service in some other department and then in their own department. And they, you know, people who have been working in these departments for years, for the first time, they saw themselves from the perspective of the citizen. And it completely changed their view of what they were doing and how to design their services. So place the citizen first, understand the citizen, and then think about how can we use technologies like biometrics, digital ID, digital payments, whatever, to make their lives better. That's it. I think, Professor Prabhu, what encourages me, I'm, I'm an inside professional. I think that's the industry I am in. And I think we often have this debate that, you know, is this industry dying a slow death? But I think after having heard your views, it, it sort of looks like that, you know, we have another 50 to 100 years left because I think customer insight will be more important than ever before. And I think if you couple that insight with tech solution, because I think technology can offer you scale, it can offer you economies. Probably, I think that's where, you know, you know, the intersection of technology and insight, I think, is where the innovation currently sits. But we are in a very exciting phase. And who knows, I think, you know, what next 10 to 15 years have in store for us. I had a fantastic session with you. I wish that I can invite you again back onto the show, you know, to chit chat more about future of marketing, how businesses are transforming, how they are changing and what sort of disruption really means. So thank you for being on my show and sharing such excellent stories. Thank you so much, Saurabh. That was a brilliant summary of our conversation. I too thoroughly enjoyed this and I'd be delighted to come back and follow it up again at some point. So thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Recast with me, Saurabh Sardana. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. Also, if you want to chat with me, connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter.